Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When it comes to MAID, and everybody in this country is talking about MAID now, medical assistance in dying, the developments uh, have taken place. Mental illness is a sole reason for medical assistance in dying by mid-March of next year is a national controversy, I'm sure you're aware. And as Canada's health care peels away, medical assistance in, die, in dying becomes an increasing issue. Dr. Stephanie Green is co-founder and president of the Canadian Association of MAID Assessors and Providers. She's a medical advisor to the BC Ministry of Health, MAID Oversight Committee, and on the clinical faculty at UBC and the University of Victoria. She's the author of This is Assisted Dying. Dr. Green, thank you very much for taking the time. What, how do you react to, to veterans being told by caseworkers, well, you can always access MAID? Well, I, I uh, although I'm not intimately familiar with the details of that case, even just from what I read in the media and what I've heard reported on various shows, I, I think it's clear that somebody's overstepped. Uh, it seems clearly an inappropriate offer uh, from someone in a position that uh, was not uh, not meant to be offering that kind of care. There's a difference between a caseworker or administrative clerk. Uh, offering something that they shouldn't be doing versus a professional duty by a clinician yeah. in certain circumstances to, to bring up the option. So this so is it what seems to me that is yeah inappropriate. Yeah. So this is what I wanted to start with: Who is eligible for MAID, and what are the rules? What are the requirements in order to receive MAID? Let's deal with some misconceptions here. Sure. So it's, it's a good question. So in order to have an assisted death in this country, you do need to be over eighteen years of age. You need to be eligible for Canadian government-funded health care. You need to make a voluntary request. So no one can coerce you into this. It has to be from yourself. And you, the the patient themselves, has to be the one to ask. Nobody can ask on anyone's behalf. It has to be the patient. They need to have the capacity to make this request, meaning that they understand what's wrong with them, what their treatment options are, including palliative care and the, the outcomes of those treatments and the outcome of an assisted death being irreversible death. And they need to have what the law calls a grievous and irremediable condition, meaning that they have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability that puts them in what the law calls an advanced state of decline in capability or function, and that they're suffering intolerably in a way that they deem, um, you know, there's no way that it can be uh, addressed in a way that they deem tolerable or acceptable. So it's quite a robust system. Those are the eligibility criteria. So, as you know better than most, challenges now to MAID being available for mental illness reasons only by mid-March. It's been interpreted as dangerous to people with disabilities who may be suicidal, and mental health specialists are challenging mental illness as the sole necessary reason for MAID. What do you say? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is reframe the the discussion because I think there's a a tendency for people to think this is some sort of expansion of the law. But this is not actually that. This is truly a restoration of the rights of individuals who are suffering from mental health disorders. You have to remember our Supreme Court made a decision in 2015 offering the possibility of assisted dying to people who meet all the required eligibility criteria. And that included that included people with mental health disorders. They weren't particularly excluded. Nobody was based on diagnosis. But the government created a law that essentially excluded people with a mental health disorder as their sole 
condition uh, by requiring their deaths to be reasonably foreseeable. And that requirement, of course, was challenged and removed from the law in 2021. So in some ways, I mean, you know, in actual fact, this is a restoration of those rights to to, uh, an often stigmatized population. So I think it's important to contextualize them. Do, Um, sorry, go ahead, please. No, that being said, it is obviously a complicated matter with a lot of complexity. And granted, this is a population of our society that has, that is potentially quite vulnerable. So we do need to be careful. The question is not whether this should be allowed. That decision's been made. The question is how. How can we do it safely uh, and well and, and protecting those who need protecting? Are you satisfied that those uh, protections are in place? Well, I think it's a... a you know, I think we've got some experience since 2021. You know, we've been seeing patients whose death is not reasonably foreseeable. We've already come up against the complexity of that. We are learning about the safeguards and how to uh, how to um, implement them. And I, I, I do think the safeguards are adequate uh, as they're laid out. I do think we will need some more um, some more experience and more uh, discussion, education, and training about how to apply them specifically to those who have mental health disorders. But I do think the safeguards in them themselves seem to be sufficient. And the expert panel that was written and tabled in May of 2021 suggested uh, 19 recommendations, but did not suggest any new particular safeguards be added. So uh, what you just said leads me to this question. Do doctors uh, and other healthcare professionals, to your knowledge, actively suggest made to patients, or does the initiative have to come from the patient? I really appreciate the question. I think uh, the, the, the answer is that if a patient brings up the issue of wanting to die, it's the role of the physician or anyone to explore what they mean by that. Is it that they want to die now? Is it that they want help to die? Is it that they're hopeless? Or is it that they're seeking information about something else, palliative care, other resources? But that aside, that's not really what you're asking. It is the role of the clinician in certain circumstances when a patient is discussing end-of-life options, for example, or when they're discussing what we call goals of care discussions, when they're talking about what's most important to them at end-of-life. Um, in certain circumstances, it is, in fact, not more more than appropriate. It's important and necessary for clinicians to bring up this as one of the possible end-of-life options available to them. If if an oncologist were to give a patient with cancer one option for, for chemotherapy when there were actually three available, that would probably not be considered good care. And, and likewise, when someone is facing end-of-life decisions and options, if one might be palliative care or continuous sedation or made, it, it's up to the clinician to make sure that the patient who's interested in all of the options be offered all of the options so that they can make a truly informed decision for themselves. It just seems to me that, and this isn't talked about much, and I think it should be, it, it, it can't be easy for the clinician to talk about made. It can't be an easy thing to do. Um, I've always, just from my personal definition, final act of compassionate health care. I know people will disagree with me, but that's my view. But it can't be easy for you as a doctor and other doctors to to talk about it, to arrange it, and then to carry through. That, that, that must be difficult. Well, there's a, you know, I don't mean to be flippant, but there's a lot that clinicians do that are difficult. This is a difficult conversation. Yeah, I guess talking so. About, talking to someone about their end-of-life options is, 
is always a little bit heartbreaking. Somebody's life is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you've given the, the, the most robust information, answer all the questions, make sure everything is, is said, nothing's left unsaid. You know, it, it, it is a difficult conversation to have, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And, and clinicians and physicians and nurse practitioners who are fearful of doing that are doing a disservice to our patients. Patients want these conversations. They want the information so that they can make decisions for themselves. It's an important part of what we do. Uh, This is not not an easy question, but I think it's relevant. Do you think that MAID may be on the increase because of the challenges Canada's health care system is facing and maybe uh, nudging people who are not receiving treatment and care that require to opt for MAID? Is that that a relevant question? Well, I think it's a relevant question and an important question, but I think it's it might be a little misleading. I think that we are seeing increased numbers of Canadians asking for MAID, and I, I, I'm not convinced that it's for the reasons you you worry you rightly worry about. I think that it is is still relatively new here. Um, we've not you know we've we've seen problems with accessing MAID in several regions of the country. We see that uh, being addressed in some regions. We're slowly seeing more clinicians being willing to be involved, or up until now we have. Um, So I think the increase in number of people asking for and receiving MAID will continue. It's incredibly important to remember that the questions that we're grappling with about mental health disorders and, and patients with chronic complex diseases, we need to address those issues. But 97.8% of all people who accessed MAID last year, that's the vast majority, did so along what we call track one. These are patients whose deaths are reasonably foreseeable. Mm-hmm. In that sense, uh, a somewhat more straightforward evaluation from a medical point of view. And that is the overwhelming majority of people who are asking for MAID and will continue to do so. So that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about the smaller percentage. We absolutely need to get it right. But I expect we'll continue to see an increasing number of people along the track one route uh, accessing MAID. So numbers will go up. What are the greatest, uh, if there are two or three really significant misconceptions about MAID, what are they? Hmm. I think one is that people uh, people think that people access MAID for uncontrollable pain. That's not generally the case. That is certainly less than the majority of cases and uh, very far down the list. The majority of people seem to describe their suffering uh, as um, uh, no longer able to do the activities that bring meaning to their life and no longer able to uh, have to be independent in what we call their activities of daily living, taking care of themselves. Uh, so that's more common. Uh, palliative care does a really good job with addressing pain. So that's one common misperception. I think the other misperception is a little bit self-centered for me, and you were alluding to that earlier. You know, is this difficult work? Is this morose work? Is this something that shouldn't be done by clinicians? And I would say that as difficult as this work is, and it is intense and emotional work. It's also proven itself to be incredibly meaningful work uh, because patients are very grateful for the mere possibility of this option, uh, very grateful family members and, 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 and people uh, to have the possibility. So it's turned out to be meaningful work and not morbid or negative uh, in all circumstances. Of course, it's always sad uh, and, and can be very intense and emotional, but not always as negative as people think. And Dr. Green, your sense is that, uh, I don't want to call it mainstream, but uh, but MAID is going to become more of a fact of healthcare delivery life in this country than it is now. 
I, I, yeah. yeah, I think Canadians are, are pretty clear that they want this option at end of life, um, and they are choosing it in certain circumstances. Uh, still very few, still only 3.3% of all deaths every year uh, attributed to MAID, but I, I don't think that's going to get smaller. Uh, I think it might continue to raise a little bit, uh, similar to our colleagues in, in Europe, where this is available, and in the Netherlands, you know, it's over 4%. So I think we'll continue to see that. This will be, which will be, continue to be a, uh, an available form of health care in this country. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 